to The Art of Mathematics. I'm Carol Jacoby, and joining us once again is Jeannie Lazzarini, who's a math education specialist. And today I want to talk to her about fractals, fascinating fractals. What can you tell us about fractals, Jeannie? Well, hello, Carol, and thank you so much again for having me back on. I really enjoyed talking about fractals, especially, I mean, I love math as art in all forms, but I've always had an interest in fractals. As I've seen as a little kid, even growing up, I just looking at the trees and the things in our natural world, I've always wondered about those things. So for me, it's a very fascinating subject, so I appreciate having the time to do this. Throughout my talk, as I'm talking here, I would like to refer to several illustrations that will be included in part of your podcast description afterwards. So please, I mentioned to the audience, refer to those as I talk about fractals because they are very visual. So there are lots of great examples and some great sites to check out afterwards as well. I'm going to be posting that on the website for this podcast, which is the Art of Mathematics podcast. Dot com, so you can check it out there. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Well, I'd like to start with a quote from Benoit Mandelbrot. He was born November 20th, 1924, and passed on October 14th, 2010, called the father of fractals. We will get to that a little bit later, but he has this interesting quote. In the whole of science, the whole of mathematics, smoothness was everything. What I did was to open up roughness for investigation. And that's exactly what I'm going to get into. I think it's wonderful. Because Mandelbrot's work on fractals and related structures vividly illustrate to me how amazingly simple math operations can lead to intriguingly complex results. Many people think mathematicians are very different from artists, but I think they're very related. And we're just using different languages. We're actually talking about a lot of the same things. Mathematical formulas can be generating into art forms and vice versa. Take, for example, again, here we go, the beautiful and most bizarre objects of all mathematics, which I call it fractals. They're based on the Latin adjective that means broken. But now what Mandelbrot coined the term fractal to convey that the geometry of nature is not made of straight lines, circles, spheres, and cones, but of a rich blend of structure and irregularity, which we will see quite a lot of examples of in Karen. So think about a jagged rock. Just pick up a little rock, a jagged fragment of a rock can resemble a rugged mountain, or how branches on a tree actually resemble the forking pattern of the whole tree, or how clouds keep their distant, wispy shapes, whether viewed from the ground, or close up in an airplane. Mandelbrot believed there's a link between these natural forms and self-similar geometric curves and surfaces, and that they can be explained with mathematics. So there are coined four different types of fractals, but they all have in common. It's very hard to define them precisely, but they all have four common fractal features. Intricacy, zoom symmetry, complexity from simplicity, and fractal dimensions. And I want to get into fractal dimensions a lot in just a little bit because they're fascinating. So to create with a fractal, actually, I have lots of examples of that later to look at. But start with a simple pattern and then iterate, repeat it over and over again at smaller or larger scales and look for fractals in our natural world. So I'm going to go back to some classical look 
at fractals. One of them is called the Cantor set, which is a simple way of understanding fractals and the meaning of iteration. It was a fractal pattern introduced by German mathematician Georg Cantor in 1883, just a few years before my house was built. We have an old house. (laughs) What you do is take a look at a straight line, okay, and take a look at the line, and then in that line, divide it into three equal size pieces. Then take a look at those three pieces, and they're copies, exact copies of the big line, and they actually look like the same line. But take out the middle piece and discard it. Then you're left with two lines, and the next iteration, take out the middle third line, discard those, and you're left with the third iteration. You just keep going and going and going and going to infinity and beyond. So that's an example of smaller and smaller self-similar pieces. Another very famous look at fractals is known as the Koch snowflake, also known as the Koch curve, the Koch star, the Koch island. It's a fractal curve in one of the earliest fractals to have been described. It's named after Swedish mathematician Niels Koch. And what it is is, so in the Koch snowflake, you could build it up iteratively in a sequence of stages. The first stage is an equilateral triangle. And each successive stage is formed by adding outward bends to each side of the previous stage, making smaller and smaller equilateral triangles. The areas enclosed by successive stages in the construction of the snowflake, actually is fascinating, it converged to eight-fifth times the area of the original triangle. And the perimeters of these stages increase without bound. So what's really fascinating about the Koch snowflake, it encloses a finite area that has an infinite perimeter, which is a wow thing. So I have a Mathagon simulation of this, an animation that you can watch and it shows the first seven iterations in animation, which is fascinating to see. Okay, another one is the Sierpinski Triangle, named after Polish mathematician Wacław Sierpinski. And it appeared as a decorative pattern many years before he, he brought it to the fore. But it's a fractal fixed set, a fixed point of a function which is mapped onto itself by a function with the overall shape of an equilateral triangle subdivided recursively into smaller equilateral triangles. And what you do is, it's really interesting, it's one of the basic examples of self-similar sets, mathematically generated pattern that has reproducible at any magnification or reduction. And another one is called the Menger sponge very famous fractal curve. It's a three-dimensional generalization of the one-dimensional Cantor set and two-dimensional Sierpinski carpet. It was first described by Australian-American Carl Menger in 1926 in his studies on the topic of topological dimension. And to construct a Menger sponge, you do the following. You begin with a cube, divide every face of the cube into nine squares, kind of like a Rubik's cube. Then subdivide the cube into 27 smaller cubes. Then you remove the smaller cube in the middle of each face and remove the smaller cube in the very center of the large cube, leaving 20 smaller cubes. This is the level one Menger sponge. It's also called a void cube. You repeat these steps two or three times or more, and you can keep iterating this infinitum. So each one of those little cubes, you're going to remove pieces from that just like you did in the first step. Exactly. All the remaining cubes. 
Right. You're going to keep removing and removing. And I have illustrations of this as well. There is a order beneath the seeming chaos. You could write down formulas to describe clouds and flowers and plants. It's just that they have different kinds of formulas. And you can give a different kind of geometry. That was a quote from Keith Devlin in his wonderful Nova presentation from 2011, Hunting the Hidden Dimension. I highly recommend watching that. So what is a fractal? A fractal is a geometric shape which is both self-similar and has fractal dimension. Now, to be self-similar means that when you magnify an object, each but smaller part still looks much like the same as a large part. Mandelbrot would say, in quotes, the main idea is always as you zoom in and zoom out, the object looks the same. For example, when you zoom in close to a part of a fractal, say a part of a broccoli, broccoli stem, you'll notice it looks very similar to the whole broccoli. And I've mentioned again the tree, which branch from a tree looks like the whole tree. There's many examples that be on those. The plants look just like fractals, but it's very important to clearly mention that it's impossible to create true fractals in real life. If we keep repeating the same pattern over and over, smaller and smaller, you'd eventually get to cells, molecules, or atoms, which can no longer be divided. However, by using mathematics, we can think about the properties that real fractals would have, and these are very surprising, and they lead to many other discoveries we never thought possible. Traditional Euclidean geometry largely focuses on regular, smoothly shaped objects, but the natural world is crinkly. So fractal dimension is a different type of dimension than what we use to describe shapes such as lines, flat objects, and geometric solids. So, for instance, simple curves such as lines have one dimension. Squares, rectangles, circles, polygons have two dimensions, while solid subjects such as cubes and polyhedral have three dimensions. Some people say time is the fourth dimension, and, you know, of course, the fifth dimension was an American popular musical group that in the 1960s. <laughs> in all these cases, dimension based on ancient Euclidean geometry is described as an integer. One, two, three, four, maybe five. But a fractal could have a dimensionality of 1.4332, for example, other than a one. The rougher the fractal, the higher the fractal dimension. The fractal dimension indicates this detail of crinkliness and how much space it occupies between Euclidean geometric dimensions, which is very, very mind-boggling to me. So we'll understand a little bit more about fractal dimensions by looking at a couple of examples. Okay, first consider the dimension of a line. A line, again, can be divided into n separate equal-sized parts. For example, each of those parts is one nth the size of the whole line, and each part, if magnified n times, will look exactly the same as the original. So for a line, the log of the number of divisions is equal to the log of n to the first, where the exponent is the dimension number, which is one. Now for a square, we could repeat this process too, showing that a square can be divided into n squared parts. So when you look at my illustrations and the references, pay attention to the blue line that shows how we're looking at the sides and everything on this. So repeating for a square, the process shows that a square can be divided in squared parts so that the log of the number of divisions equals the log of n squared. When scaling it by a factor of two, its area increases by a factor of two squared, which is four. A cube has a dimension three. 
when scaling it by a factor of two, its volume increases by a factor of two to the third, which is eight. Each of the n cubed pieces would be one nth the size of the whole figure. But what if we had split the large three-dimensional cube into 27 smaller self-similar cubes? It follows still the same pattern. If there are 27 smaller cubes, there would be 27 self-similar parts, which are three magnifications divided by divisions on the side of a larger cube, showing that 27 is equal to 3 to the n, where n is 3, which is the dimension. For fractals, looking at the object divided into self-similar pieces that when zoomed in on n times reveals an interesting figure. Because of the fractured figure, we divide the log of the number of divisions by the natural log of the magnification factor. This results in a formula that gives us the dimension. In each of these examples, the magnification was always n. But for fractals, the magnification factor will be a constant which varies for each fractal, causing it to have a non-integer dimension. So going back to that like Sierpinski triangle, it consists of an equilateral triangle with smaller equilateral triangles recursively removed from its remaining area. In fact, it is an intricate pattern that manages to have no area at all. That's my mind. <laughs> to me, that's like, whoa. <laughs> okay. So Let's say that D is the dimension of the Sierpinski triangle. If we divide that Sierpinski triangle into three identical pieces with two magnifications divided by divisions on the side, then three equals two to the D. So that means that log three equals log of two to the D, which is D log two. If you solve for D, you get D equals log three divided by log two, which is approximately 1.585 for the dimension, which is a non-integer. What if the triangle were divided into nine self-similar pieces, each with a magnification of four? There would be four self-similar pieces on each side of the large triangle. So the dimension is log nine divided by log four, 1.585, the same result as before. So the dimension of the Sierpinski is somewhere between dimension one and dimension two. So in general, M equals R to the D, where M is the number of magnifications, divisions, or copies of the object. R is the scale factor of the object, and D is the object's dimension. Well, how can something have a dimension and not be an integer? It seems impossible, but this is just one of those weird properties of fractals. In fact, it's what gives fractals their name. They have a fractal dimension. With every iteration, if we remove some of the area of the Sierpinski triangle, we could do this infinitely many times. There would always actually be no area left. That's why the Sierpinski triangle is something in between a two-dimensional and a one-dimensional line. Most objects in nature aren't formed from squares or triangles, but more complex fractal shapes. Think of ferns, flowers, coastlines, clouds, leaves, trees. Mountains, blood vessels, broccoli, weather, <laughs> lightning, fluid flow, river estuaries, circulatory systems, geological activity, fault patterns, animal group behaviors, musical scores, etc. So going back to fractals, they've been known about for over a century, but became better known to people outside of mathematics and science because of two main events. Mandelbrot gave them the term fractal in 1975. He'd written a breakthrough paper 
1967 entitled, How Long is the Coast of Britain? Statistically, Self-Similarity and Fractal Dimension. He analyzed what was called the coastline paradox and oddly not noted until the 20th century. It's impossible to say how long the coastline is. It depends on your point of view and what measurements you are using. As the shorter the units you measure it in, the more you can get into the crinkles, giving it a larger result. The value of the British coastline varies by hundreds of miles depending upon the measure. Now, that's a mind-boggling thing. He had found that many natural shapes could be understood using fractal geometry rather than Euclidean geometry. While straight lines, triangles, and circles of Euclidean geometry are important for building bridges, houses, roads, and so on, nature seems to construct its objects differently with a more complex geometry. And the next thing that was a major breakthrough was the availability of computers. They made fractal images suddenly visible that had once been way too complicated for humans to draw or explain. Computers made it easy, basically, to do iterations with endlessly repeating cycles of calculations. When mathematicians could see the structure of objects they were working with, they were able to discover many more exciting examples of fractals that no one imagined even before. People now use and study fractals in many other fields besides mathematics. Let me give you some examples. In medicine, we look at the growth patterns of cancerous tumors human lung structure, vascular systems, the spread of infectious diseases, pattern of heartbeats, bone structures, circulatory systems, etc. In art, fractals used to date early paintings. Uh, there's an artist named Arlene Stamp. She's one of numerous artists who found connections in the representation of binary numbers, which are the basics of modern computation, and fractal imagery. In seismology, Fractals are used to study the fissures caused by earthquakes. Computer programmers use fractal techniques to encode large sets of data efficiently. Animators use fractals to recreate plant movement, flowing water, wind, hair, and many other special effects. Actually, when I spoke last time, I was talking about M.C. Escher and tessellations. When you look back at M.C. Escher's work, Heaven and Hell, that's a fractal, too. It's a picture with angels and demons all starting out large and getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But they're self-similar. A great example of the 1990s, a Boston radio astronomer named Nathan Cohen used fractal mathematics to make a breakthrough in electron communication. He had a hobby as a ham radio operator, but his landlord didn't rig antennas on the building. So after a, hearing a conference from Dr. Maldebrot in Hungary, he decided he could make an antenna out of a fractal shape. Took a piece of wire, when, what would happen if he bent it and so forth. The result of his work was a mathematical theorem that showed if you want to get something that works as an antenna over a wide range of frequency, you need self-similarity. And he made this when, at the time, cell phone companies were facing a problem. Each of them offered frequencies like Bluetooth, walkie-talkie, and Wi-Fi that ran on separate frequencies. Cohen said you need to be able to get all those different frequencies and have access to them without 10 antennas sticking out. Today, fractal antennas are used in tens of millions of cell phones and other wireless communication devices all over the world. And this is the only way to get cheaper costs and smaller size. Mandelbrot said, once you realize a shrewd engineer would use fractals in many, many contexts, you better understand why nature, which is shrewder, uses them in its own ways. What you see in the natural world, you can translate into the language of mathematics. That's mainly what I want to say. That is math and art combined. 
Thank you. This has been really interesting. There's a lot I didn't know. I didn't know about the fractal antennas. There is quite a lot. My examples will show you if you, if you look through those. And things. those are going to be posted on the Art of Mathematics podcast.com. So check those out. Thank you so very much. I enjoyed doing this so much. And I, I really hope my audience enjoys it as well and goes forward and investigates further. Yes. Thank you so much, Jeannie. It's been a real pleasure having you. Same with you. Thank you so much. We'd love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like to share on the air or a suggestion for a guest for a future show, leave a message at anchor.fm slash the art of mathematics with hyphens or email me at cjacobi at jacobiconsulting.com. And if you'd like to learn how to get answers from data, check out my class at excelfordecisionmakers.com. See you next month. Thanks for listening. 